0: Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform.
1: Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's
0: your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. We appreciate being a part of your day, and we've got a busy show. We had some announcements, or at least one big announcement yesterday from USDA: some proposed changes to country of origin labeling. The label on a piece of meat, milk, or dairy that says product of the United States made in the UN United States. They've changed those rules or proposed to. We'll talk with our friends at NCBA about it in segment two. And in segment three, we're going to get a look at the markets. The March World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates are released from USDA tomorrow. Arlen Suderman will join us today with a look ahead at what the market is expecting. And in segment four, we're going to talk with Cam Quarles, the CEO of the National Potato Council. They've recently completed the first economic impact study of spuds here in the U.S. and Cam will fill us in on those details. Before we get into all of that, however, we're going to take a look at a risk that's brewing out there in some soybean fields ahead of the 2023 season, and that's soybean cyst nematodes. Joining us now is Dr. Greg Tilka. He's a nematologist. He's the director of the Iowa State Soybean Research Center, and he serves as a leader of the SCN coalition. Dr. Tilka, thanks for joining us today.
2: Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me.
0: Let's talk, we're gearing up for spring planting. Greg, what should growers be thinking about this time of year with regard to soybean cyst nematodes?
2: Well, there's not much adjustment that can be made this time of year, um, but I I'm thinking about how soybean cyst is going to play out in the upcoming growing season and Um, I have a sinking feeling in my stomach. Um, Soybean cyst nematode loves really dry soils, and numbers increase um, much higher than in soils with average moisture or even waterlogged soils, and I look back at 2022 and 2021, and we had those conditions across much of Iowa and the upper Midwest. So I know from our own research plots that SCN numbers Uh, SCN had a heyday in 2021 and 2022 and of course 2021 if fields are in a corn bean rotation that's what we're going to plant into in 2023 so I'm a little nervous or a lot nervous about um, what soybean cyst is going to do to our soybean crop in 2023 Um, But as I said, there's not much that can be done other than maybe some last minute decision to add a nematode protectant seed treatment to the soybeans that are going to get planted this year.
0: That's a good point. It's not too late for every act of defense. Greg, while we think about SCN, you've spent 25 years studying these pests in soybean fields. Why are you raising concern about SCN now? What's developed recently that needs to put this back on our radar?
2: Well, Mike, it's a train wreck in slow motion is what I say. Um, It's a force of nature and that is that farmers across the Midwest have been growing cyst resistant beans but they contain the same resistance gene and the force of nature is natural selection it's just like using a single herbicide active ingredient eventually the few survivors of that herbicide or of SCN resistance have a chance over decades to build up and we're now seeing ninety percent of some SCN populations uncontrolled by the easy-to-come-by PI-88788 resistance. So in many respects, our soybean varieties today are more susceptible to SCN than they were 15 years ago. Of course, yield potentials are a lot better now than 15 years ago, but I think we're heading to ever-increasing yield loss if we're stuck with using that easy-to-come-by PI-88788 resistance
0: geographically, Greg, how widespread is the SCN threat that growers need to be thinking about?
2: Well, it's, it's found in every soybean-producing state in the U.S., with the exception of West Virginia. But it kind of got a chuckle, West Virginia sometimes doesn't produce any soybeans in a given year. Uh, within a, a state in Iowa, we've done random surveys funded by the Soybean Checkoff and found it in 70% of the fields. I know someone who's done random surveys in Illinois and found it in 80% of the fields. Um, Not every state is as bad off as Iowa and Illinois, but it's out there. And I just gave a presentation yesterday where I showed some um, results where we collected windblown soil and grew soybean, uh, wind-blown soil off of snowdrifts, and we grew soybeans in it, and they were loaded with SCN females. So if you, if you want to get a thinking feeling about how SCN is spreading, um, we found it in soil on top of snowdrifts. So it's, it's out there, and farmers need to check for it and then start managing it.
0: Indeed, that is terrifying. Snow on top of a snowdrift full of SCN. Greg, for farmers to start managing, if they haven't put much of a thought on it, they've been using the PI-887088 for a while, what's the first step? Is it a soil test to assess what the count is in your ground?
2: Yeah, that is a first step mainly, Mike, because of where we're at in the growing season. So um, they should work either themselves or with an agronomist and get a good set of soil samples uh, collected and processed so they know what their numbers are. That's the advice of the SCN coalition which we're all uniform, unified in battling for SCN. But then come this fall, I'm, my message for 2023 is start looking for the hard to come by resistance called Peking resistance. And we got to start using that now rather than wait until each farmer realizes they have a disaster going on in the field. So sampling is a thing to do. Uh, heading into the growing season or during the growing season, but you're going to hear me talk a lot more about starting to use the peaking resistance um, as we move towards the end of the season into fall uh, variety selection.
0: Now, Greg, as growers take a look at that peaking resistance, I understand in the past there have been concerns about yield. Has research overcome a lot of those recently?
2: Um, that's a great point, Mike, and research hasn't overcome it. The nematode has overcome it. So when PI-88788 worked well um, or a field that did not have SCN, 88788 varieties had much better yield potential than Peking. But over 25 years of forcing the nematode to adapt to PI-8878 out, the yield potential of those varieties is significantly less now than Peking varieties. So what's flipped the script there is the nematode becoming resistant to the resistance. The plant's genetics basically have stayed the same over 25 years, but the nematode is causing yield drag on 88788 and therefore making Peking the more profitable thing to grow.
0: All right, so take a look at those Peking varieties. Any other thoughts here that farmers should put in their minds as we get through this growing season with regard to SCM?
2: Mm. Well, don't discount seed treatments and that's something as I started our discussion that that could be um, made still heading into the season. And then just start thinking more actively about managing SCN. And I like to refer people to the SCN Coalition website which is thescncoalition.com all without any spaces. And there's state-specific information on what labs you can send samples to, a university expert to ask specific questions. But it's time for farmers to re-engage and become more active with SCN because it's a a slow-moving train wreck. It's not going to get any better.
0: The risk is here, folks. Take it seriously. Again, that website is thescncoalition.com. We've been talking with Dr. Greg Telka. Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay tuned. When AOA returns, we're going to talk about the cattle business with Kent Backus from NCBA. Stay here for more coming up right after this. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Are you heading to Commodity Classic in Orlando? Stop by the Trelleborg booth and see me, Mike Pearson, for some exciting live radio and learn about the new HF-1000 steel-belted tire and features that minimize soil compaction. Get a cup of coffee at the Barista Bar, and I'll be broadcasting my show live from Trelleborg booth, 1423 from 10 to 11 a.m. on Thursday and Friday from the Commodity Classic showroom floor. That's Trelleborg booth, 1423 from 10 to 11 a.m. We'll see you in Orlando. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Troy Schneider and Janice Hiley of the Market Development Action Team joined us looking ahead to Commodity Classic. Janice, are you excited?
4: Next week, March 9th through 11th, will be the Commodity Classic. This year it's being held in Orlando, Florida. Our booth is at the trade show floor and just an amazing place to check out, by the way, if you're in town. And we're in booth 1603.
0: Troy, what can farmers expect at the NCGA booth this year?
5: Well, Mike, as the producers
6: come on into the trade show floor, we're going to be there in the center stage as one of the main sponsors. And that's a good way for us to explain and to showcase our sustainability, our productivity, and our commitment to feeding and fueling this world that we live in.
0: Again, NCGA will be in booth 1603 in Orlando at Commodity Classic. Tune in April 5th for the next monthly grind with our friends at NCGA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart.
7: Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen to AOA
0: Today. We're looking back at an announcement that came out on Monday from the USDA, and this was a much watched for announcement. It's building on a proposal that's been floating around for quite some time. And this is the product of the USA label on meat, poultry and egg products. USDA came out yesterday with a revision to that existing label. Joining us now for an update update rather is Kent Backus. He serves as the executive director for government affairs at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And Kent, thanks for joining us today.
7: Well, Mike, it's good to be here, and I'm glad to uh, have a chance to talk about this important issue.
0: Well, and it is an important issue. It's an issue that has a lot of people passionate out here in the country. Kent, let's start with the issue of the first rule that USDA is revising. The voluntary product of the USA label didn't make a lot of people happy. What were the concerns there with that that label?
7: Well, it, you know, when it comes down to it, you had a. You, Right now, you have a generic USDA label that really, uh, it it undercuts any ability uh, for us to have uh, product differentiation because the the rules for what a product of USA can be are kind of fast and loose. So you could have imported product that can carry this label. Uh, You know, in CBA, we we did a thorough investigation of this and looked at the application of this label and found a lot of inconsistencies, raised a lot of questions, and that's why we uh, that's why we submitted an application uh, to to FSIS to the Food Safety Inspection Service to, to to discontinue this label altogether and instead replace that with you know something that's more descriptive like process verified. Uh, but we also said that you know for real product differentiation, we need to make sure that any of these claims are properly verified, and we think the best way to do that. Is through the process uh, verified programs that that already exist at USDA. This latest rule that USDA put out it keeps "Product of USA" as a generic label, but it, it, and, it and it keeps it voluntary. So it doesn't mean that there that there's a mandatory compl- uh, uh, you know application to it. But you know we've got uh, we've got a lot of questions and uh, there's a lot to read as we unpack this because uh, I think at the end of the day. We want uh, to create an environment where, you know, there's an incentive for retailers and for packers to actually work with producers to have premium programs that, that market and capitalize on demand, consumer demand for origin sourcing.
0: Absolutely. It's all about finding that area where the premium is and marketing to it. To that end, I want to hit on the differentiation between these two USDA product of the USA rules. The old one, as you discussed there, used to be able to have imported products come in. So long as they went through a quote, significant transformation, then they could be called products of the USA. Of course, that that frustrated folks. This new one. They say the animals have to be born, raised, slaughtered, and processed in the United States in order to wear this label. I guess my question is, Kent, do we know how they're going to verify that these animals
7: were born, raised, and slaughtered in the U.S.? Well, I think that's the important question, and it's definitely something that we that we want to you know learn more about. And keep in mind, this is a 75-page rule accompanied by a 116-page consumer survey, so there's a lot to uh, unpack here. But I, I, think for us, uh, you know, the rule states that there will be some record keeping uh, requirements. You have to have, you have to be able to to kind of show proof. But, you know, what about the enforcement side of this, and, and what are what are those verification processes? What, uh, how can consumers know? How can producers know? Uh, and so having it as a generic label, I don't know that that necessarily, you know, keeps it at the, that high threshold that that we would like to see. Uh, but the fact that it is voluntary. I think that's an important step and it's definitely something that we support. So, you know, over the next 60 days or so, whatever, you know, the comment period opens, NCBA is going to dig into this. We're going to ask a lot of these important questions and, you know, and we're, uh, we're going to do that with a mindset that, you know, we want what's best for cattle producers. We want to make sure that, that there is a profitable path forward uh, for our members because you know, at the end of the day, um, you know a government label it, it, uh, you know as we've seen in the past is not always helpful. And if there's a way to you know move this in the right direction where it would be uh, successful then I think that that would be important. Uh, I think what we don't want to see is that we just end up right back where we started with a, a different set of criteria. So uh, again, a lot of questions. I think there's going to be a, a lot of uh, chances for us to uh, to raise those to engage and really try to deliver, an end result that's beneficial for cattle producers.
0: And you mentioned this rule that was sent out yesterday from the USDA is just the proposed rule. So that comment period, if it's not open quite yet, no doubt it's opening here this week and it will be there for 60 days after being published in the Federal Register. And Kent, I've got to imagine the importance here is getting out there, getting those comments in so we can shape the right sort of rule as this goes forward.
7: Well, and uh, to that end, you know, making sure that you know the existing uh, labeling opportunities that we have, make sure that they're not undercut. Uh, keep in mind, you know you've got a strong demand for a lot of you know local and state and regional uh, sourcing. And so you've had you've had producers, you've had states that have even gone forward and tried to uh, develop these kind of these kind of programs. but, there are some there are some references within this rule that if you have a state branded uh label that uh, you would also have to be able to show those requirements there's there's a lot of uh there's a lot of inference in these rules that that there's going to be some compliance costs so i I know that the uh you know the initial uh you know uh report from usda's it looks like this would only cost like three million dollars in labels but you know we have to look at the overall compliance cost as well and as we've seen with some of these marketing labels in the past that's usually passed back down to the producer and that's not what we want to see you know we want to see something that's that's profitable and beneficial for us so uh, again you know we're going to be you know asking these questions we're going to be providing uh you know examples of of solutions that we think will work Um, and, and also just trying to work with usda to find a find a path forward here and find a solution that is that puts you know uh, dollars in the pockets of cattle producers because at the end of the day that's the most important thing we'd have to have something that's profitable for producers and something that continues to provide consumers with that confidence in that beef product that they love so much
0: Absolutely, folks. If labeling is important to you, Google USDA. Let me pull up the correct title here. It is the USDA product of the USA label claim. Just Google that. It'll take you right to the comment page. It's a very long website. Get your thoughts out there. Kent, while we're talking about beef from outside the United States coming into this country, I want to pick up that conversation we had last week on the push to ban Brazilian beef imports. That legislation was put up on Capitol Hill. Have we heard anything since then? What's the conversation about that? Issue in DC?
7: Well, I, I think over the last week, you know, we've definitely seen a, a growing interest from Capitol Hill and from international governments as well that have, have weighed in on this. We know that USDA has, has been looking into this. Uh, we've shared this uh, with, with the leadership there, uh, but there's been a lot of interest from Capitol Hill, uh, not just uh, the ones that have entered, not just the elected officials that have introduced legislation, but we've had a few members that have also started to submit their own letters. Uh, to Secretary Vilsack and asking questions. Um, you know, we've had uh, a lot of questions from our neighbors uh, north of the border and south of the border, as well as uh, from uh, even some South American markets that are uh, kind of wanting to know what, what they missed. And uh, so being able to share those facts with them has also uh, started to, uh, to raise a lot of questions. Um, and I, I think you know uh, now that we uh, now that we know that this is this is not just a one-off issue. This is something that's a repeated problem, and we've made a pretty strong case for that. I, I think that that just goes to show you all the more reason why the USDA needs to suspend these Brazilian imports until they can you know uh, conduct a thorough audit process and review process, and until Brazil actually shows that they have put safeguards and measures in place that that. Uh, mean that they can continue to provide an, an equivalent level of safety to what we offer. Um, so this is not an issue that's going to go away. This is something that uh, we're going to continue to talk about. Uh, this is a priority for for NCBA, and it should be uh, for our government as well.
0: And as of right now, the push is still on USDA to use their existing tools. Is that right, Kent? we don't need the legislation quite yet?
7: well i i think the, i think the legislation complements those tools that are there but usda has that ability right now uh based off of just the the animal health and potential you know uh, other safety concerns that are there uh, they have they have the uh, the ability to do this and we've seen it before we've seen the secretary of agriculture be able to use that authority to uh, temporarily suspend uh, access and i think you know there are plenty of scientific justifications as to why that should move forward so I think we've made a very strong case. We're going to continue to to advocate for that. Uh, you know, we want to work with USDA to find a solution on this, but we think the in, in the immediate term, uh, we have to send a strong signal to all of our trade partners that there's no exceptions, that you play by the rules or you don't.
0: That's right. The rules apply to everyone. Folks, we've been talking with Kent Backus. He's the executive director at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association for Government Affairs. Kent, thank you so much for joining us today.
7: Thank you very much.
0: And folks, stay with us. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist from Stonex. We'll join the program next. We're going to talk about what's coming potentially tomorrow in that March. World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates from USDA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform.
2: What a great organization. Helping families in need like ours. It's
0: a godsend. When an unexpected crisis strikes, Farm Rescue is here to help. Assistance is available free of charge to farm families experiencing a major injury, illness or natural disaster. Our volunteers and equipment are ready to spring into action with planting, haying and harvest support. If you or someone you know could use a helping hand, visit FarmRescue.org today.
8: You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. Well, let's take a look at this market trade. Relatively quiet in the grains and oil seeds. It was that way overnight. We're staying mostly that way here as we work through our trade on Tuesday. Corn, beans, wheat, really just a couple of cents either side of unchanged. It just seems we lack a bullish story to really move these markets, but not necessarily a bearish story impacting the market trade either. It seems like trade is quietly waiting for tomorrow's WASDI report that March World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates Report Expectations USDA will cut global stocks of quarter beans in that monthly report on Wednesday. Traders expect a very modest reduction in Brazil's quarter bean production estimates as well as a significant reduction in Argentine production estimates. Average trade guess putting Argentine soybean production at 36.65 million metric tons down from 41 last month. Corn output expected to fall to 43.41 million metric tons, down from 47 last month. Now, some private estimates are even 5 to 6 million metric tons lower than that. So it feels like the trade is kind of consolidating here today, waiting for confirmation from USDA on some of those numbers coming up here on Wednesday. Corn really 1 to 3 lower, beans Two to six lower, a little more pressure there. Bean meal, though, is trading a bit higher, giving some support again. Beet oil is under a little bit of pressure here, while wheat is uh, mainly anywhere from one to two higher in Chicago. KC to spring wheat is down a little bit more moderately here. As we work through our trade uh, down anywhere from about six to 10 cents. Meantime, in the livestock trade, mixed action in cattle, really just kind of steady. Not much happening there. Hogs under a little more pressure with some triple digit losses in the deferred contracts here as we work through our trade on this Tuesday. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen.
3: Hey, dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, dad. Your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute.
1: Hey honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with
0: information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance. Care for your own physical and mental
1: well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank
0: you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org/caregiving. That's aarp.org/caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ed Council. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil. Oil that runs smart. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back. AOA continues here today, and now we're turning our focus to the commodity markets. The grain trade is gearing up for USDA's release tomorrow of the March World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist from Stonex, joins us now with a look ahead at those numbers and an update on what's moving the markets today. Arlen, thanks for joining us.
6: Yeah, it's good to be back with you, Mike. I keep yearning for spring, and uh, it looks like we got a little more snow to go in the north, and uh, but some heavy rains in the south. But that says transition time, and hopefully spring is just about here.
0: Hopefully, your your lips to God's ears, Arlen. Let's talk about what's happening in the markets today. We've got beans on a bit of a sell-off after yesterday's rally. Are we just turnaround Tuesday here in the beans?
6: Well I think there 's a little bit of nervousness up there um, as we get near the the recent highs that we put made in February. Uh, do they really are they justified to go higher and I have to be honest here I didn't think they'd get above $15 we went above $15 uh, So we're in lofty territory here uh, What's supporting the market is every time we have a drought in Argentina the soy meal values get pushed sharply higher because the funds assume that the US is going to get a lot of crushed business uh, from the world on exporting soy meal and this time around brazil's got a massive crop that it can ship south to argentina and what it doesn't ship south it has crushed capacity to crush and it's going to be a cheaper value so i don't think that's going to be the case i think the market may be starting to recognize that uh... and the key is you know how much smaller is this crop going to be if it does get below thirty million metric tons in argentina then maybe we do start picking up some business. Some private estimates are below 30 million metric tons. I think 30 million will catch it. I think it will be between 30 and 32 million. USDA is expected to uh, come down to about 36.6 million metric tons in tomorrow's report, so it's on its way down to that level. That's really the key. And once the market figures, okay, we've priced it in, it's time to move on to something else, then it's we could very easily see this market crumble pretty quickly. So that's something we're going to have to keep our eyes on closely.
0: Arlen, as you're thinking about soybeans and those numbers coming out tomorrow from the USDA, we're expecting that Argentinian crop to come down. Is the Brazilian crop expected to grow at all on this report?
6: Well, according to our producer survey, it is, according to the average trade guess, they're expecting a small reduction in Brazil's corn and soybean crops. The primary thinking there is that with the drought concerns, dry weather concerns in the southern part of Brazil, that's going to pull overall production lower, and and I understand that because Production in Rio Grande do Sul, in the southern part of Brazil is probably going to be down 25, maybe even 30 percent due to dry weather. Uh, but our survey indicates that a more area was planted to corn and soybeans than what was anticipated. They expanded soybeans by about 6.5 percent this year over the previous year. Corn a little better than 4 percent over the previous year. Uh, and that yields in the center west area made of grass are coming in just at very high levels and is going to more than offset the losses in the south so we're a little bit of an outlier with expectation of uh, yield of production going up the overall trade expectation is a slight decrease but still record corn and soybean crops either way
0: All right, Arlen, let's bring that focus back here to the U.S. and the expectation that USDA might change some numbers. On the corn front specifically, we've seen export sales lag for so long. Do we expect to see a drop in uh, corn for export in tomorrow's report?
6: Very possibly. We could see 25 to 50 million come off. uh, I would lean toward the smaller end of that. I think that with the small Argentine crop, that we're going to see a more notable increase in corn exports going forward. Uh, We are lagging right now. Uh, marketing year-to-date corn sales are lagging where they need to be. The seasonal pace needed to hit USDA target by about 250 million bushels. Actual shipments are lagging the pace by about 190 million bushels. But with the Ukraine, less of a factor this year because of the war. With Argentina's crop, much smaller, in uh, Brazil's crop just now being planted, their exportable saffrina crop, I think we could have a fairly significant increase in export sales and shipments here over the next several months to close that gap. And so while I do think we may have trouble hitting USDA's target of $1.925 billion, I, I don't think we're going to miss it by that much. And so I think USDA will be rather cautious about making any notable decreases at this time because of the factors I mentioned.
0: That certainly makes sense. Arlen, on that corn balance sheet, are you expecting any big changes anywhere on tomorrow's report? Or I should ask, is the trade expecting any large changes anywhere?
6: No, we're, we're really not. Um, just the export, there could be a reduction um, in, uh, in grind for ethanol. Um, I'm a little bit more optimistic in that than it is those people calling for a reduction in grind are primarily looking at just last year's, uh, where we sit relative to last year. I'm looking at more the seasonality of it. And as I look at the seasonality of it, I, we're only trailing where we need to be by about 10 million bushels or so, and we're seeing some improvement there. Um, So I don't think USDA is going to make any real changes in uh, ethanol grind in this report. If anything, just be exports, no feed usage changes expected until after we see the stocks report at the end of March on March 31st. Uh, So I'm looking for a pretty quiet report coming out tomorrow with the exception of what they do with Argentine corn and soybean production and then any implications for the world balance sheet that that may have.
0: All right, Arlen. Hopefully it's a quiet day tomorrow. I'd like if we could to spend a couple of minutes on soybean meal. You talked about the risk that's there is that Argentinian drought has intensified for end users who are looking at locking in their meal needs here for this summer into this fall. Arlen, what are the factors that will need to happen to see this price break?
6: Well. Domestic demand for soy meal is strong right now, and uh, we've got some logistics issues in some places and some parts of the Midwest as well, adding to that. But if I'm an end user of soy meal, I'm feeling better about things long term. But I have to watch my upside risk short term. Uh, as far as Argentine situation and what that might do to the meal prices going forward, uh, the key is going to be whether they can maintain strong enough crush margins in Argentina to pay the freight to haul those soybeans south out of Brazil, bring them down to um, the Paraná River, or bring them down from the ports through, via the ocean coastline, or even by truck to pay that freight to bring them south. What doesn't get move down south to crush, then Brazil, I think, will be able to handle much of that capacity. One of the things that's largely unrealized here in the United States is we've had such a rapid expansion of corn-based ethanol production in Mato Grosso area in central Brazil that that was a major crushing area for beans and now that meal is being pushed on the export market with all the DDGs that they have in that area so that's a factor as well so once we get through these logistic issues and some of the weather problems we've had with processors some of the tight situations here recently I think we're going to be better off longer term with soy meal particularly once we get to this year's harvest we're going to be tight on supplies uh, which is going to keep bean bases probably firm for much of the next six months or so but once we get to the new crop harvest I think we'll be dealing more with an oversupply of meal than we are an undersupply of meal.
0: All right. Could be a 180-degree switch here as that gets closer. Arlen, looking at the wheat market, we are seeing a little bit of green here in Chicago wheat today. Any news here driving the market, or did we just get a little oversold?
6: Yeah, We were a little bit oversold. The charts are looking pretty weak right now. We were getting close to the bottom of the declining channel that's been in place really since September. Um, and this is a market that desperately needs some help. Um, they're just the bears are in control right now the path of least resistance is lower and they're all always focused on the export numbers and frankly we really haven't had the wheat to export um, but that's been the focus and I think in the end we're going to find out that feed usage was a little bit stronger than anticipated uh, the real key going forward though I think for the US market is going to be what you know where we come out with the drought in the southwestern plains how much of a loss do we take there and how How much, what does that do to our overall wheat supply? Uh, We're also going to have to keep an eye on the Russian crop, which affects the Chicago market to a great extent, with some forecasters expecting some problems with heat as that crop develops as we go into the spring and early summer. If the forecasters are right, then that could really further tighten up supplies in the world market because world supplies of milling wheat are tight. Um, there's not much room for error. It's just that the market doesn't care right now, and it's trading kind of a just-in-time mentality. We're fine. There's no problems in the expectation that we're going to see the uh, grain initiative with Ukraine extended, and so the market's making a lot of assu- assumptions at a time when there's not much margin
2: for error.
0: If that grain agreement does get extended, Arlen, would that push more downward pressure on it or is the volume so small it wouldn't make much of a matter?
6: Well, I think that's already been priced into the market. I think the bigger question is if it isn't priced and if it isn't extended, I think that would probably have a bigger impact because right now the market's expecting that it will be.
0: All right. Good points there. As we look to this week ahead, keep an eye on everything that's coming out of these important places. Folks, we've been talking with Arland Suderman. He is the chief commodities economist with Stonex. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stay with us. When AOA returns, we're going to talk with Cam Quarles. He's the CEO of the National Potato Council. We're going to get an update on Spud's economic impact here in the U.S. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Fueled by innovation, powered to perform.
1: Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block.
0: This is around the table where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership today we're talking with charlie carter product quality and additives manager for chs refined fuels commercial supply to learn about how farmers can manage their winter fuel storage today to make sure they're prepared for spring planting charlie why should producers be checking their fuel storage now why not closer to planting
5: yeah mike thanks it's imperative that that our producers are checking their storage before it's time to get in the fuel rather than being delayed by potential downtime. If they run into a a quality issue within their fuel tank, it can take time to clean up or fix these issues that are found in your fuel storage. So really starting now gives them that clearance to resolve these issues without that added time crunch. Oftentimes a fuel sample is needed to really understand the extent of your fuel quality issue. And if you have a fuel quality issue present, it can take up to a couple weeks to get those results on top of any necessary steps needed to remedy that issue.
0: Charlie, what's the best course of action after I find water in the tank or perhaps some other contamination?
5: Yeah, so really depending on your local regulations as well as your tank configuration, you may be able to drain that excess water easily through a bung on the bottom of your tank, but making sure you're taking careful consideration to avoid a spill of fuel once that water is drained. Uh, There are also other products such as advanced tank filters like an aqua fighter that could be installed to absorb that excess water for safe removal. Uh, And really after that, if either of those options don't address your issues or if microbial growth has been detected, more stringent actions are necessary, such as a potential biocide additive or professional tank cleaning, which can be costly and time-consuming.
0: Folks, that's Charlie Carter, Product Quality and Additives Manager for CHS Refined Fuels Commercial Supply. Charlie, thanks for joining us. And folks, thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. On the first Wednesday of every month here on AOA, we get together for the monthly grind, a conversation about corn demand and the partnerships it takes to make that corn industry profitable with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. Troy Schneider and Janice Hiley of the Market Development Action Team joined us looking ahead to Commodity Classic. Janice, are you excited?
4: Next week, March 9th through 11th, will be the Commodity Classic. This year it's being held in Orlando, Florida. Our booth is at the trade show floor and just an amazing place to check out, by the way, if you're in town. And we're... in booth 1603.
0: Troy, what can farmers expect at the NCGA booth this year?
6: Well, Mike, as the producers come on into the trade show floor, we're going to be there in the center stage as one of the main sponsors. And that's a good way for us to explain and to showcase our sustainability, our productivity, and our commitment to feeding and fueling this world that we live in.
0: Again, NCGA will be in booth 1603 in Orlando at Commodity Classic. Tune in April 5th for the next monthly grind with our friends at NCGA. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel, fueled by innovation, powered to perform. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, AOA continues today. And I've got to say, folks, one of my favorite things about eating is finding a place to enjoy a potato. Almost every meal, I've got some way to enjoy potatoes, but... We don't know really how much impact those potatoes have on the U.S. economy, or I should say we didn't know. We're learning thanks to a new economic significance report. Joining us now for an update on that is CEO of the National Potato Council, Cam Quarles. Cam, thanks for joining us today.
4: Hey, Mike. Good to talk to you.
0: Let's talk about the economic significance of the U.S. potato industry. Cam, what's the headline number there? How big is this industry or how big is their impact?
4: It, Mike, it, it, uh, it, it was news to us, and we were very excited by the overall size. I'll, I'll cut to the chase. Over $100 billion a year is generated by the supply chain that begins on potato growers' family farms across the United States. Um, that also includes 714,000 jobs across the country, billion in wages from those jobs, and for our GDP, $53 billion is added through the work of the potato industry, both the direct and indirect uh, activities that go on every year.
0: Those are some staggering figures, $100 billion, $34 billion in wages. Cam, now that you've got this report, you've got this data handy to show the hard work that the U.S. potato industry is doing, what's next? Where do you take this sort of information?
4: Well, we kicked it off last week, uh, Mike. We had our Washington summit here in town. Uh, Michigan State University was the institution that did this uh, study for us. And now we've taken its results we're going to capitol hill obviously one of the one of the major efforts that we're looking at for the coming year is uh, the farm bill and we want to make the case through uh, this economic contribution um, as well as others that i'm sure our allied uh, partners are doing across the industry the value that investing in american agriculture the u.s potato industry specialty crops Uh, what those investments can generate, uh, not just for us, but for uh, the U.S. consumer and the American economy as a whole.
0: That's such a great point. When we hear the phrase specialty crops, we tend to think niche markets. But Cam, a $100 billion economic impact is anything but niche. And that's certainly the case with potatoes. As you're on Capitol Hill and you're talking to these uh, legislators and regulators about the upcoming farm bill, what are the key points that potato growers are bringing to the table this year? Cam, what matters to your industry?
4: Yeah, and uh, I'll I'll talk for potatoes, and then also uh, I'm one of the co-chairs of the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance, and that's an incredibly important organization. And so I'll I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, for so the let's talk broadly first. The Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance has come up with their recommendations for the new new uh, farm bill. It's taken over a year to get to those recommendations. I, I think you're going to see some very familiar themes coming out of those. Uh, Specialty crop block grants, uh, all of the various things, the the diversified things that those block grants can do, each individual state can choose its own priorities for supporting the specialty crop industry. Those are terrific. Research, uh, uh, fundamental to our competitiveness, uh, 20, 30 years in the future, a lot of the research investments that are made now will ensure that we're we're competitive decades out in the future. Uh, Pest and disease exclusion, Uh, trade programs, uh, export promotion. We really want to see the market access program well-funded. And then, of course, for the the specialty crop industry, fruits and vegetables, and for potatoes, as the most widely consumed vegetable, we want to see substantial investments in nutrition. We want to see flexibility in nutrition, allow uh, schools to make the necessary choices to put more fruits and vegetables on their plates. Uh, we think all of those are tremendous priorities, and they really give back to the U.S. economy if they're if they're able to be fully funded.
0: Absolutely. And that's so true with nutrition, particularly in the context of those specialty crops that don't have the massive checkoff programs that can support that kind of background. Cam, so that's the specialty crop outlook as a whole. On the potato outlook, do you have anything more specific that you're pushing for in this next farm bill legislation or are you all pushing the same direction as specialty crop producers?
4: Well, that is—it's the—it's the benefit of working in a in a unified coalition is we're all rowing in the same direction. There are a few things that we pull out though, specifically for potatoes, and and I mentioned several of them. Um, I, I just want to highlight. You and I had talked before, Mike, about um, our our battle getting into Mexico, and we had last week at our big meeting we had Secretary Vilsack there. And we provided him with a with an award for all of the work that he had done to open Mexico to U.S. potatoes. And I will mention, too, the way that you award the Secretary of Agriculture for opening Mexico to potatoes is with a golden Mr. Potato Head. And so uh, we provided that to him last week. One of the ways that we fought that battle was through a very important program in the trade title called the Technical Assistance for Specialty Crops Program. We want to see that... that uh, continue to be funded going forward. I mentioned the research programs, specialty crop research initiative that goes just for fruit and vegetable research, so important. We've generated uh, tremendous programs in the areas of soil health, potato breeding. Those those types, that that type of research is going to benefit us. It's going to echo for Uh, decades out in the future. So those are just a couple of programs we focus on specifically for potatoes, um, but we are a unified voice with the rest of our fruit and vegetable colleagues under the Specialty Crop Farm Bill Alliance banner.
0: That is true, folks. If you want to get the full details of that economic significance report in the potato industry, it's 15 pages long. We just scratched the surface. You can find it at NationalPotatoCouncil.org, and it's the Stud Nation Report. We've been talking with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, thanks for joining us.
4: Thanks, Mike. Good to talk to you.
0: And, folks, tune in tomorrow. We'll be talking about what's ahead from BASF here on this uh, AOA. We'll see you then. Take care, everyone. Agriculture of America is brought to you by Senex Maxtron Synthetic Diesel Engine Oil, oil that runs smart. Are you heading to Commodity Classic in Orlando? Stop by the Trelloboard booth and see me, Mike Pearson, for some exciting live radio and learn about the new HF-1000 steel-belted tire and features that minimize soil compaction. Get a cup of coffee at the Barista Bar, and I'll be broadcasting my show live from Trelloboard booth 1423 from 10 to 11 a.m. on Thursday and Friday from the Commodity Classic showroom floor. That's Trelloboard booth 1423 from 10 to 11 a.m. We'll see you in Orlando. Pride, it runs deep for those in agriculture, but that pride can also prevent farmers from asking for help when it's needed most. An injury, illness, or natural disaster is a heavy burden for any operation to bear. Farm Rescue is here to help shoulder that burden. We are a nonprofit organization helping farm families in crisis with free planting, haying, and harvesting assistance.
3: There is no pride lost when it comes to Farm Rescue. Learn more at farmrescue.org. we can make a difference bite by bite.